Welcome to Tiger Talks, where we interview successful Princeton alum and individuals on campus to learn a little bit about what makes them tick and how they got to where they are today. I'm your host, Edgar Wang, and this is episode one. Today we have Kevin Yang, who is co-founder of People.ai and an operations research and financial engineering graduate. Uh, so, Kevin, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today? Um, it's a long story. I don't know if it's the best line. But uh, I would say it's a series of being in the right place at the right time, meeting the right people. A lot of luck and some some being prepared. So, Orphe uh, as a whole is a kind of natural segue into data science in terms of uh, the content that's covered and skills that you acquire. So... I decided I wanted to be a data scientist at some point. I think roughly this time last year. So I took, uh, I signed up for one of those uh, coding boot camps, made it six weeks through, and then I went to a meetup because they had pizza, my favorite pizza place. Uh, I was asked to interview, and I walked out of there four hours later with an offer. So that's how I, I got into data science formally. And then in February, my current co-founder, who was a VP marketing at the data science firm I was at tapped me on the shoulder to uh, do a startup with him and I was like all right sure let's go and kind of been a, it's been a wild ride ever since so a lot of luck and a little bit of uh, a little bit of preparedness but most I, I know that's not the best answer but <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's great yeah it's always the pizza that gets you to go to these events um, and definitely preparedness and luck help out so a lot of students on campus are currently really interested in data science. It's become a hot topic. What kind of got you interested in data science, and how do you think Princeton prepared you for that career? That's a really good question. Um, you know, it's interesting because the only direct overlap that I remember from my Princeton courses was from ORF 305, I believe, with Multi. And the class was about optimal learning. And there was one particular phrase I remember, which is multi-arm band. Um, and that's, that's like, it, it's a different term depending on what kind of data scientist you talk to or what their experience is. But the general idea is how do I make the most out of limited information? That was a really useful thing I picked up from Orphe. And then the other set of skills that comes from Princeton engineering is some basic coding as well as the statistics, which is really handy. Like data science is this weird amalgamation of statistics, knowledge, some optimization in terms of algorithm efficiency, and uh, a, a, a pretty good amount of math in terms of how you do your data transformations, your mappings, etc. So it's this really weak hybrid skill set that. Orphe majors are seem to be well prepared for, given the number of people going into data science from Orphe. And did you? Um, oh, and, continue. It's kind of the thing right now, so pay is good. Yeah, go be a data scientist, make money. All right, you heard it from Kevin. Yeah, go be a data scientist. Uh, in terms go, of, go. oh no, yeah, don't be a data scientist. There you go. Yeah, I think for undergrads, I don't know in particular, but most of the. Uh, Silicon Valley is throwing a lot of money at data scientists right now, so get it while it's good. <laughs> and in terms of preparing for the skills, do you feel like Princeton gave you the practical skills you needed, or was it very much learn on the job and it was different from the academic setting at school? Um, I think 
the thing that Princeton prepared me the most for was in terms of just the sheer hour commitment. <laughs> uh, there were, there's a lot of time spent on problems that's banging your head on problems. And, you know, funny enough, that translates fairly well to the tasks of a data scientist. Uh, of course, data science is a very broad term, so it will depend on what problem you're working at at what firm. But in general, I think one thing I've learned is, you know, if you're willing to put in 50% more than your uh, competition or your peers, it'll get you a little farther ahead. Not a one-to-one mapping, but hours in, hours out. One thing I will say is there's a very glorified picture of uh, Silicon Valley startups. I'm sure a lot of you guys have seen the TV show. It's a very romanticized film. There's a lot more hours <laughs> than what they show. And branching off no... the Silicon Valley entrepreneurship, how did you get interested in entrepreneurship? You mentioned a lot of luck and it sort of happened. Had that always been an interest of yours to work on founding a company? No, it's funny enough. Like Part of the reason I went to Princeton was I did a series of internships in Silicon Valley. And, and I did two of them and I was like, all right, this is not my thing. I'm going to go out east and study finance and run as far away from Silicon Valley as possible. So it was not my intention in any way, shape, or form. Um, in terms of entrepreneurship, when I joined my previous company, H2O, uh, I met my partner, Oleg, and he was the only person there who had a successful like exit before. So he had founded and then sold his own startup from 2011 to 2014. So what I the company was to work with him. So I built a good relationship with him there, and when he decided he wanted to do his next thing, you know, I joined him for the adventure. So that's kind of how I got roped into it. Um, I don't think it was particularly my intention. It was just being knowing the right person at the right time. Uh, I've been extraordinarily lucky in my short career path so far. And a lot of people that are rather successful mention luck and knowing the right people at the right time. Do you think you did anything active to go about meeting these people and to set yourself up for entrepreneurship? Yeah, I mean, the other way of looking at luck is, uh, I believe the saying is like, fortune favors to prepare. And so if you put yourself in a position with a mindset or with a skill set to uh, be open to good fortune, I think it'll help. In my case, um, this was a bit of, you know, I knew who I wanted to develop relationships with when I joined the company and very early on, I knew what skills I, I wanted to develop. So I think when I joined, I had goals for what I wanted to accomplish in three months. When I accomplished those three, I said the next three. So yeah, I live my life three goals at a time. Um, I'd say that that has been part of getting lucky, but I'm not really sure how much I'll credit to that. I think a lot of it has been just been blind good fortune. Well, yeah, as they say, luck favors the repaired. Uh, that's really interesting that you set everything at your job in terms of goals. Uh, do you have any advice or techniques for people going about setting actionable goals and setting the right ones that stretch you the perfect amount to grow? I think my biggest mistake in Princeton is not setting those goals or not setting them effectively. So I'd say in terms of setting goals, there are really three key factors that every goal should satisfy. One, it should be achievable. And in a, like, if I read or if I do things perfectly, I will get it. But, you know, leave yourself a margin of error. Um, the easiest way to discourage yourself is to set yourself up for failure by demanding perfection. And so the first part is make it achievable. If it is, keep it short and specific. 
right? You can have big long-term goals, but those are a series of steps, and it's important not to forget those small steps. Um, I think the third one, and the third one is to incentivize yourself. You know, it's good to have goals for the sake of having goals, but, you know, work hard, play hard. I think that's one thing Princeton students do particularly well is setting up, setting themselves up in terms of uh, work-life balance. Um, you know, I, I, I see it on this, but you got cool shit and keep it up. <laughs> and there's this idea of goals and having the processes in place to get there or the habits that are daily things you put in that take you to your goals. What are some personal habits you've developed that you think have really helped you achieve your goals so far? Um, that's a good question. One really important thing that I try to do on a monthly basis is I just spend some time and do like a personal post-mortem. I just reflect on what I did well, what I did not, you know, what my successes were in terms of personal relationships, work relationships, personal happiness, and just look at, hey, I did this well, I could have done this better, and just keep track of it. Um, you know, I'm a data scientist by profession, and I have spreadsheets for everything, diet, exercise, <laughs> Tinder, Etc. And I find that having reliable, high-quality data about myself makes it easier to make decisions. I mean, some people do this in the form of diaries. Others just take notes or have uh, other ways of tracking themselves. But I find that having a good way of reflection, uh, a good way of a good form of uh, reflecting, is really helpful. So part of the difficulty at Princeton, I think, is a lot of students get caught up in just moving forward and accomplishing and not really taking the time to step back and think because it's so difficult to find time just to think when it doesn't feel like you're actively moving forward. Uh, what would you say to change your mindset to focus on the benefits of reflection instead of just trying to move forward? Moving forward is it's a, it's a big grand goal with no um, victory, I would say. And so... Reflecting forces you to set up smaller conditions for yourself. In order to analyze whether you did something well or poorly, you have to have set a completion point on, on that individual action. So I think that would be largest value added reflecting in my personal benefits. It just it forces you to look at things in a smaller perspective um, or a more or more detailed perspective instead of just thinking, "Oh, I didn't." You know, I, it's hard to. At least it was hard for me personally to set goals one semester at this time, but to break it down to a week at a time or a month at a time made it much more manageable. And, you know, I could see where I failed on an individual basis rather than just saying, oh, I didn't accomplish my goal for this semester, but rather like, hey, I didn't get this done this week and this is part of why I didn't accomplish this. I think it's the, it's the forced granularity in reflection that I found to be really helpful. Got it. And in terms of reflection, it requires a lot of self-awareness and asking the right questions. And sort of a shortcut to that is just asking other people that have been down the road for advice and sort of working off that. Um, how did you develop the sense of self-awareness to be able to ask yourself the right questions and have meaningful, productive reflection? You know, that's a really hard question. Um, I think part of it has just come with the startup experience where, you know, at the beginning, you and your co-founder are the company. So reflecting on the progress of the company is really kind of reflecting on yourself 
And that was really helpful. Um, a lot of the feedback we got from customers, you know, it's a direct reflection of the effort and the uh, work that we put in. So I don't know if it directly answers that question, but um, I think, uh, uh, let, me, let me rephrase that. I think some of it comes down to uh, separating yourself from your work because uh, yeah, it's easy to take criticisms of what you do personally. And I know I do that. I know, you know a lot. It's very hard to take constructive criticism without taking it personally. So uh, being able to see the difference between the two and that, hey, you know, the fact that I uh, failed at this test versus succeeded at this test, a success or failure in itself is very handy for soliciting that as well as just reflecting on it on your own. That's a really fine distinction, separating yourself from your work. That's a good takeaway. And uh, on campus, there's a lot of a fine line between people that view themselves as technical and people that view themselves from a business visionary perspective. And you see that come across in a lot of the classes. Coming from the ORF major, which is perceived as a little more technical, uh, how did you go about gaining the business experience to go about founding a startup? What business experience? Because <laughs> <laughs> that's really my answer is my co-founder is an experienced entrepreneur. So he's taken the lead on the legal side, leading our investors in terms of setting up customer introductions. In that sense, I don't think I have actually developed the business side um, to the extent I would like or necessarily at all. So I don't know if I can answer that question. However, I can speak about some of the experiences of fellow founders in my batch that was that necessity forces you to put on different hats um, in my case I had to learn how to not only manage myself but also manage other engineers and for other co-founders it was how do I talk to customers how do I talk to investors it's uh, it's a matter of necessity that got those business skills that's really it is just realizing that you have to do it and it's like all right uh, you know, hold your nose, jump in, and do it. Uh, you know, there I have some friends who never interacted with customers before directly, and they had to go and ask for money and secure that money. So, I think realizing that you just have to do it, and doing it is a it's, it's a platitude, but I think it was effective motivation for people I've for people I know. And you also make a really good point about focusing on what you need to do. You said you needed to learn how to manage an engineering team, whereas other people needed to focus on interacting with customers. So playing up your strength sounds very important to doing a startup well. Doing a startup is a very, very difficult task in that there's really no clear victory condition. Right. When you look at your first job, whether it's doing investment banking, there are clear delineations of when does this test end, what is my next advancement. With a startup, you know, you can't think of it in terms of succeeding in terms of uh, securing rounds or customer milestones, but you really have to set those yourself. Like there, there is a well-trod path on which to define yourself or your, your efforts. Um, did I segue too much from your question originally? No, no, that's great. Uh, there's something interesting because right now the entrepreneurial community on campus 
is growing. They're starting up uh, eHub where groups of students can work on entrepreneurial stuff throughout the year. And a lot of people want to become founders right after graduation. What is your advice to navigating the ambiguity of entrepreneurship after graduation? And is that even a good choice right out of school? Um, do realize this. The first things that investors look for or customers look for is pedigree. And your Princeton pedigree will not get you very far in startups. Um, not to the same degree as Stanford or MIT or Harvard or a more technical school. You need to have some sort of follow-up option. Um, either this is leading a team, like make a name for yourself or you know, have some degree of ability. And I think jumping in directly from undergrad makes that very difficult. Um, that's not to say you can't do it. I mean, you know, two of my very good friends that I met through my combinator dropped out of Harvard as juniors to uh, found a startup and they're doing very well right now. So um, I think what I have to say on this is that if you want to do it, absolutely, but be aware that it is an extremely high risk uh, a high risk endeavor. Like there, you know, 90% of startups fail and you have to go into this realizing that you may walk out two years later with really nothing accomplished or nothing that you can, you know, think of as a resume bump. And branching off this idea of like, risk. Hmm? Yeah. Uh, branching off this idea. Failure of a possibility. Mm-hmm. And going off risk, there's this philosophy some people hold that you should optimize for risk when you're younger because you can afford it. You're not tied down with family, uh, with a house. Uh, what are your thoughts on optimizing for risk when you're younger? Um, I think that's true to a certain extent. However, this also has to do with what your table stakes are, right? If you're, if you're coming to the table with your lunch money, which is essentially what you're doing as a... Uh, as a founder straight out of undergrad for the majority of founders, you're coming in with no management experience. You don't have any uh, significant uh, network to draw on in terms of investors, in terms of customers. You're kind of gimping yourself starting starting this way, unless you can carry yourself through your idea, unless you have such a fantastic idea great traction and a good set of people to build with, you are playing the game on a harder set of rules compared to someone who's doing this out of MBA or doing this after three or four years at a company where they've learned and managed their own divisions. Doing it out of undergrad will be extremely difficult. Uh, I don't want to like understate the difficulty of, the, of early stage startups. There are a lot of things you will have to learn very quickly, a lot of high pressure situations. And there is no pause button. With a normal W job, you have your weekends, you have your you know, end of day. There is no off mode on early stage startups because it's not just you that's counting on yourself. It's your investors, it's your employees, it's your customers. Like there's there's no time for the most part. And I think that's one thing that um, I want to restate is because if you have a good idea and you're only putting in forty to sixty hours a week, you're going to get steamrolled by someone similar idea of just putting in a hundred. That's just you know, the fact of the matter is startups require time and sweat equity. 
So yeah. given this amount of sweat equity you have to be putting in, do you think that there's such an idea as work-life balance for an early stage startup or is it very much investing all of your time into it? There is no such thing as work-life balance. <laughs> um, if you find yourself with free time, then you are either not growing fast enough or you're screwing up your organization somewhere. <laughs> it's important to take time to rest, but I think the thing is if you want to do early stage startups, you have to be devoted to the point where it's basically where you're crazy. There are a lot of sacrifices you need to make for early stage startups to be successful. I, I think uh, I think it's important to be aware of how large those sacrifices are. That's a really good point to, to make that it actually does require a lot of time. Um, to, to go back to some more lighthearted things, at the end of every interview, we want to, we want to ask Princeton alums, sort of what were their best experiences at Princeton? Uh, what's one moment that you really remember that stood out to you? Mm. I don't know if it was a particular moment, but I really enjoyed my senior year. I loved being around everybody in the eating club. You know, I loved living there. It was nice having community all around. Um, I think that would be my highlight. I am sad that I'm at reunions this year for work, but I think, you know, having your ticket booked and being willing to cancel 12 hours before your flight is, I'd say, one of the necessary necessary requirements to doing early stage startup. If you want to do it, you have to be willing to say, all right, and sacrifice that. I would say that's my biggest regret is missing missing reunions. Yeah, it sounds very difficult to balance startup life with anything else. And do you have any words of advice you'd like to share with current undergraduates? That's a really tough one. I mean, the only advice I would say off the top of my head is learn SQL. That'll be really useful no matter what you do. But <laughs> I know that's not the kind of advice that uh, I'd like to leave with your viewers. So. You, you've offered a lot of good points throughout the, the talk, so I think we're good on that one. Uh, are there any last-minute plugins you'd like to share to, to check out something of yours? Um, let me see what I can recommend that would be very useful because I don't think too many, uh, too many Princeton students are going into B2B software as a service sales. Oh, if you guys are living in the Bay Area or Tennessee, there is a, another YC company founded by a Princeton alum called Start Yoshi. And what they will do is they will come to your place of work or your residence and fill up your car for you once a week. It's cheaper than gas station. The time, fantastic service run by Nightwrist. Of 2009, I believe. I'm not sure the exact year, but it is Brian first. So, great company, great Princeton people. You know, support them if you're in the area. Sweet. All right. Thanks a bunch for taking time to share, Kevin. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Edgar. Well, that's it for this time. Hope you enjoyed the show. Tune in again next time for another exciting interview. If you have any comments or thoughts you want to share, feel free to leave them in the comments section. We look forward to any feedback. All right, thanks for listening.